to Life North of the 54th. I'm Garrett Brown. And I'm Preston Brown, and we're happy to have you join us on our show. And here we have joining us today, Arlen Fair, and we'll have him introduce himself. I'm Arlen Fair, born and raised in the, uh, in the Peace region. I knew these boys whenever I was uh, young, but of course, <laughs> we were basically the same age, so we've all gotten quite a bit older now. But uh, yeah, lots of memories from back up there, so it'll be fun to talk about some of that. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Arlen. It's great to have you with us, and it's you know great to catch up with you a little bit. It's been a while, and I, I always appreciated having the time to spend with you when I was up there in the peace country. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So if you want Arlen to introduce yourself to the listeners and let us know what some of your earliest memories of the peace country are, or anything you want to share about your growing up experience in the peace country. So I grew up about 30 minutes north of a town called Fort St. John on a farm where I grew up with my parents and a couple of my siblings. I'm the youngest of five children. There's like a nine-year gap between me and the next oldest one, so I kind of had a little bit of the experience of being the youngest, but also a bit of the experience of almost being an only child. My oldest brother uh, lived on the farm with us through my whole life, but he was uh, sometimes he felt more like a tenant. Um, (laughs) So I didn't have a whole lot of interactions with him than I otherwise might have. There's a lot of time just going out and just poking around on the farm, learning things. One of my favorite things to do is because I just had this really long dirt driveway. And when it would rain, I'd go out there and I'd like dam up little channels and make almost engineering projects of these dams, putting putting pipes in them so water would still flow through. Um, and then, of course, the funnest part was going over and knocking them all over and seeing the flood uh, rush, down the, yeah. rush down the driveway. Um, farm life was always... I think it's one of those things where it's pretty special, but you don't realize it while you're going through it. Did your parents farm the land? Like how much land did they have? They had about a quarter section, so a little over a hundred acres. It was more of a hobby farm than anything. Uh, During my younger years was when it was, I would say, at its peak production. Um, So we had some some cows, usually anywhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 80 head. Um, Had a lot of chickens all the time. There was always... Uh, more than one chicken coop that we had in operation. And even as a young boy, I'd have to go out and learn to gather eggs. And I have memories of being attacked by roosters and chased by turkeys, which were almost as large as I was. Yeah. (laughs) We also had um, some milk goats. Uh, So I grew up on basically fresh goat milk. And it was actually actually kind of interesting, because after I married, married my wife, uh, we moved to Edmonton, so we're living in a big city, which I'm not particularly used to. Uh, but went to this went to this one place, and they were actually selling goat's milk. And I actually started buying that and drinking that. It's like, oh yeah, this was the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> the taste of childhood. Mm-hmm. Some people don't really like it. They say you can you can like taste the goat, but the thing is, is I mean, I guess that's what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Most people they taste the cow, but they just don't realize they're tasting the cow. Mm-hmm. 
yeah it's it's different and like i find goat milk has like a delightful sharpness to it that i don't necessarily get with a uh, cow's milk but we never made cheese with our milk i think we tried butter once i remember churning that that uh your arms get sore yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah growing up on the farm like it was like a good 30 minute drive to get anywhere interesting unless you like bush which i did but um <laughs> like a 30 minute drive just to just to get into the city and that could get a little tedious especially in winter months or after i had graduated and had work like that's your commute but now after having lived in edmonton where it was like a 30 minute drive on on city streets just to get to work it's like suddenly it didn't seem so bad anymore <laughs> it's like oh i guess i guess that's kind of normal <laughs> yeah that's been my experience as well that it's a little bit different when you're just going through dense city than when you have to make that drive in the in the empty countryside oh absolutely for one thing you can actually have street lights and still know where the road is during a snowstorm <laughs> yeah or a, a huge queue of cars to everybody's following the next car mm -hmm. yep i'm familiar with the uh winter convoys yeah. never envy the guy at the front of the pack so growing up so far outside of town did you have to take the school bus to town every day for school oh absolutely yes for the longest time that was what it was all the time like my dad was a truck driver for my early years uh then he started working in town at uh cal tire as like a mechanic uh so when he was still a truck driver wasn't really home or you know you never really knew what the schedule was i was taking the bus and it was a long long ride like yeah. we're talking 30 minute drive to get to town and like an hour and 15 minute bus ride yeah and i was one of the first kids picked up on the way in and last kids dropped off on the way out there's only like three or four other stops that were further down the road than i was so i was on it for the long haul but uh, and in the winter months when you're waking up that early to get on the bus and everything's dark and you're still half tired, I basically just find a, find the seat over the heater and go to sleep and wake up at school. <laughs> yeah. So did you take the bus all the way through to high school? Because uh, I think, I guess, driving in British Columbia is a little different than in Alberta in terms of getting a license and driving yourself. Oh yeah, I I didn't actually have a I didn't actually get my full life license until well, well after I was graduated. Yeah. Cuz you can't start until you're 16. Yeah. And I don't even think I started when I was 16. I think I still waited a year and then I ended up uh, holding on to my learners and then I so we have the learners which you start at 16 and you have to have for a year before you can take your practical test to get an N. Right which you then have to have for two years until you can get your full license. I think they've changed uh, changed some of that since then, but that was basically what it was when I was growing up. And I ended up actually holding on to my N until my license was ready to expire. I just didn't see the point in <laughs> rushing to the full license. Cause I, it's not like I was doing road trips with everyone. It was just me going to and from work. But yeah, for high school, I was still, I took the bus on Wednesdays because it was about high school that my dad started uh, working at Cal Tire. So okay. he worked Tuesday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So I just ride in with him on those days. And then we go to our church-based uh, seminary class in the morning. But thing is, is his work started before seminary started. So I ended up sitting in the truck or in the break room at work for like 30 minutes 
until he then take me to the church uh, so I could go to the seminary class. And long story short, on the days when I had to ride in with my dad, I had to be up at about 5 a.m. in the morning. Oh, man. And that was... That was pretty brutal. Yeah. But it beat riding the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But on Wednesdays, he didn't work, so I still had to ride the bus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I understand the bus, the bus trip. We were fortunate that our route, we were basically the first ones on in our bus route, too. It was like a 15 or 20-minute drive to school, but it seemed like an hour or so, maybe 45 minutes on the bus sort of like first one's on last one's off but they did change the route eventually and we were first one's on first one's off and that was great so they would just take a different a different route back they would take the highway back and then just drop us off first and then go drop everyone else off as they went back into town and that was great so the bus wasn't too bad coming back home it's like a taxi service <laughs> yeah no, that that's that sounds pretty sweet it was actually it was actually kind of interesting with our with our bus route is it actually did like a transfer whenever you were going to high school. Um, so whenever I was elementary, my bus would go to Charlie Lake, which was a small community between Fort St. John and and my farm, closer to Fort St. John than it was was to us. Yeah. So right there, and you know, as a small kid, I'd get off. But even even as a small kid, you kind of you kind of notice this. But like the buses would hang out, and then the older kids would get off, and they'd shuffle onto different buses, and then it would carry on. So some of the buses would just carry on back, uh, into the city to go to the junior high and the high school, and some of the buses would just turn around and go and go home. So they almost had like almost like a mass transit system, a transit stop where you then had to transfer over to the other bus. Yeah, and you know all the little kids would kind of be watching the older kids transfer over. But as I grew older and had to do the junior high uh, riding on the bus every Wednesday, uh, I still had to do that every Wednesday, and I just. Remember how strange it was to have the roles reversed, and now there's all these little kids standing around watching me transfer to another bus? <laughs> but the frustrating thing about it is it actually added way more time than it should have to my transit. So it used to be like an hour-long bus ride. It's now we're an hour and a half to get to the school, and Charlie Lake was only like 15 minutes from my other school. It's just, it took so long. Yeah. But... I guess it was also preparation to learning how to use a mass transit system in a big city because, uh, you know, it took that long and multiple transfers to get anywhere interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, Edmonton's transit system is uh, not the most efficient. <laughs> no, those are uh, endless stories, I think, for another day. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess a whole a whole file of official complaints. So, Arlen, what were some of your favorite parts of Fort St. John? It's sort of a, you know, it's the energetic city. Is it actually very energetic? That depends, honestly. <laughs> I didn't get to go to it all that often because we lived out of town and didn't do, didn't really do a whole lot in, in town. But even in the surrounding areas, there's just some beautiful, beautiful areas you can go. But just to the north of Fort St. John, by the college campus, there's uh, what they call the Community Forest. And this place is just great. I love it. Summertime, full of mosquitoes. Uh, so walkers beware. And there can be some muddy patches on some of the wider routes. But, like, we're just talking really, really tall coniferous trees. And just the feeling in there. Like, you go to some parks and there's, there's sort of... um 
you feel they're not all the way established yet. Like they've been recently designed or developed within like the last few years or so. But the community forest is just like, it was a forest. It's always been a forest. We just got some trails in it. And uh, my dad used to love to go on long walks through there after church on Sundays because uh, we'd have to come in for church. And occasionally I'd go for walks with him. And even whenever I go up, still go up there to visit i still try to make a trip out to the community forest one of the things about it as well is there's a like in edmonton i'd go to i'd go to parks and you could always hear the city yeah didn't matter where you were you always knew you were still in the city there you go in there and at certain moments there's a stillness which you just don't find but that was also especially true out on the farm uh my dad and my parents, they they intentionally left a certain portion of our land forested. So we didn't clear it all for agricultural development. We left some forests because my dad loved cross-country skiing. And so he wanted to have paths that he could cut through trees and have it kind of more interesting than just cutting across a field. In the summertime, you could also go exploring those woods, woods too. And that was a lot of, a lot of fun too. Like I had a lot of great time outside just on the comfort of my own property because of that there was also um up there there's also the uh, two hydro dams in the peace river there's the peace canyon dam and the wac bennett dam yep and we used to make almost uh annual road trips with my grandmother to just go visit them and tour them and i hear they don't do it anymore which would be kind of sad but i haven't actually confirmed that but you could actually like you'd get on a tour bus and it would drive you around the grounds of the WAZ Bennett Dam and you'd actually go into the dam and you could watch the water come in or the water come out from the other side of the turbines or they'd even take you down into the powerhouse and you'd see the huge gantry crane which they had used to originally move the turbines into place and which they used to do maintenance work on them if they needed to. And it was just it was such an experience. And I I loved loved doing that. Yeah, and even the drive up there just cuts through mountains and stuff, and it's beautiful. Yeah, I agree. You so just the drive from Port Saint John to basically Hudson's Hope. Yeah, yeah, it's really really nice. Very beautiful. Something interesting I remember about the WAC Bennett Dam is it is the largest dam in the world that is an earth dam by volume. And it's the third largest dam by volume in the world. So it's one of the biggest dams internationally as well, depending on how you're measuring the size of a dam, though. <laughs> if you measure by electricity output, it's not the biggest by, by any means anymore. Yeah. No, but it's still an impressive piece of uh, earthwork. And I actually remember uh, living up there where there was, uh, there was this time where these sinkholes started opening up in the dam and everyone was kind of, kind of freaking out about what was what was going on because it seemed like there was this gaping uh, structural flaw that was opening up and it was a bit of a scandal for a while if everyone was talking about it, it was like what's going on with the dam but apparently they did some remedial repairs figured out what was going on but uh there was a time when so there's a road that actually goes along the top of the dam and you can get to the other side of the dam and there's this really nice lookout point where you can see over the spillway and that is quite an experience when the spillway is actually open like you can feel the sound of the water. It's just, it's awesome. 
Yeah. But there was a period of time where you couldn't actually drive across the road because the road was closed because they didn't know if it was going to swallow a car or something. <laughs> and that would be pretty problematic. Mm-hmm. Kind of cuts down on the uh, tourism factor. Yeah. <laughs> so on the farm growing up, did you mostly explore by yourself or did you have friends or you know other family that would be there to hang out with you? Do you recall? Usually dogs. If I had friends coming with me, we'd usually, uh, I guess, well, we'd do some exploring. There were some friends who I would, uh, who I would take, take around. Yeah, so we do a little bit of exploring. Like there was kind of my dad had a, an old scrapyard at the uh, top of the field. That was always kind of fun, especially as a as a young kid. All these rusted out vehicles. Like, what a what boy wouldn't find that interesting. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And how do you have a an acreage with hobby farm equipment that doesn't have a pile of broken down stuff somewhere? Exactly. Yeah. Abandoned projects and extra parts. <laughs> it's not a real farm if it doesn't have it. <laughs> my first car actually uh, actually ended up out there until until my mother had to uh, sell the farm. So uh, I could just walk down and see my first car sitting there. And it uh, wasn't drivable anymore after a head gasket blew out. Was that the? Is it a New Yorker? What? what yeah. Was it again? Yeah, actually. Yeah. Nineteen eighty-seven Chrysler New Yorker. Yeah, I remember when I was living in Fort Saint John, and you were driving that. It was, uh, you know, a luxury car that was Ooh. well past its prime. <laughs> <laughs> the seats yeah. were fantastic. The seats were still yeah. so comfortable. Yeah. I love riding in that thing. But the thing is, is it was, as you said, it was a luxury car. It was like really advanced for its time. So it had like digital display, um, power seats, power window, powered mirror, and it ha- it had like an actual audio voice which would tell you what was wrong with the car. So it actually say <laughs> like, tire pressure or fuel level low or anything like that. Anytime you had a check engine light on, this voice would tell you what was happening. Well, one day coming home from town, I was letting my par- uh, letting my dad drive the drive the car. My mom was in the passenger seat. I was in the back. We pull into the garage. We put it into park, and the voice rattled off everything it could say in this long-winded spiel of, like, tire pressure low, check fuel level, check <laughs> oil level, and it just rattled through everything and then never spoke ever again. <laughs> it's like, here you go. Here's a laundry list. I'm done. It's <laughs> uh, amazing. Did you retire the car at that point, or did you drive it for a while longer after that? No, I kept driving it. So the story of uh, the story of what happened happened with this is like so old vehicle perpetual check engine lights. You know how it is. Yeah. So you kind of get this feel for what problems are actually problems and what aren't problems. And the digital display had this thing where the uh, whenever you started, the temperature gauge would spike up to the danger zone and then go back down to normal. And me and my dad, we looked at it. We figured it was uh, we figured it was just the uh, thermostat, which was you know wearing out. But it seemed to still be functioning. Like the temperature was actually staying good. It wasn't actually overheating. It just seemed to be a uh, uh, something problematic with the sensor itself. So we just kept driving it. And then one day, I'm trying to get home, and all of a sudden, the temperature gauge the temperature gauge spikes, and it doesn't go back down. And I didn't notice because I'm used to ignoring it. And <laughs> then steam starts coming out from my hood. And I'm like, uh-oh, oh, we've got a problem. 
I ended up actually limping it back to um, your relatives, Jim and Pam Brown, because they lived along my route uh, to get home. Yep. And I actually managed limping it back to their house, calling home, and my dad had to come rescue rescue me. And we get the th- we get the thing uh, up on a trailer because he's got an old tow truck and stuff. We get it up on a trailer, haul it back to the farm, and we find it had actually overheated this time and blown a head gasket. And we're like, "Well, that's the end of that." <laughs> yeah, the longest time I lived in that scrapyard because I wanted to repair it because you always kind of have a special place for your first car. <laughs> yeah, I never got around to it. No. It would just be a money pit at that point. I think. Absolutely. You were correct when you said, well, past its prime. <laughs> uh, thanks for sharing, Arlen. Yeah. At the time you had your first car, I also had my first car. And yeah, they were piles of junk. <laughs> I kind of went through a long line of uh, scrap on wheels for a while. I was, I were kind of a firm. Dad was a pretty handy mechanic. So it's like if we get something for a good price at a uh, auction he could probably bring it back to life. So there wasn't much he couldn't do with the cars. Yeah. But Fort St. John, and even up in the north, there can be sometimes questionable road conditions. Fort St. John actually had some really terrible potholes in places, and I once ended up destroying something in my car by hitting a pothole too hard. Just rammed into it, and then suddenly it started making a loud grinding noise, and there were bits of metal on the road behind me, and I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I also damaged my car on a drive. Uh, it was a drive between Grand Prairie and Fort St. John. There was construction, and they didn't see the massive hole. I mean, it was construction. I was There was no one there doing any work, and I was driving faster than I should have. And I saw the hole too late, tried to slow down, and it was a massive thump. And I didn't really notice any difference at the time. I mean, it was it shook me because it was such a massive pounding on the car that it felt like something did break, and it did. The Basically, the front struts had broken, and the car then was like pointing down for, for months or like maybe even like a year or two before I got it taken to a mechanic, and they're like, your front strut is gone. And they're like, oh, okay. So then they fixed it, and then it felt like I was driving a truck because the car went from like pointing down to like what <laughs> felt to me like it was pointing up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. Potholes can be bad. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're driving too fast. Yeah, if I remember right, not even all the roads in Fort St. John were asphalt. There's still gravel roads for the streets some places. In some places, yes. There were most of most of it was paved, but Yeah. Well, and that's one of those that's one of those funny things, right? Because the uh, town I grew up in and the town that's there now, there's whole neighborhoods that didn't exist. It's like there's entire sections of town which have been developed and are full of houses and parks and things. And it's like when I was growing up, that was just a field with some trees in it. It's actually um, the church that I went to whenever it was built was just surrounded by fields with trees in it. There was no housing developments or nothing. It was like on the north end of town and there was nothing next to it. Yep. Now it's surrounded by some of the newer and nicer housing developments in town. But I actually actually have memories of playing a game of Capture the Flag in some of those treed, um, uh, treed fields around there. So it was so thick with bush and trees, you couldn't see from one flag to the other. And we were doing it, like, after the sun had set. So it was dark, we had, like, flashlights, <laughs> bush, and I'm surprised no one got injured. Yes. Yeah, I certainly recall that, too, because we 
when we lived in 101, when we went to church at that building. Uh, as a small child, I remember when we were there after dark, right, for some church activity, then it was uh, eerie, like, because the parking lot lights weren't, I mean, they illuminated the parking lot, but there was quite a bit of field, if I recall, in between the lot and the border of the trees. Mm-hmm. But the light didn't shine to the edge of the trees. And so it was just like this creepiness of, I don't know, whatever was lurking in the darkness. Because, I mean, for us, like living in 101, where it's like super small town and likely bears just walking through town at some point. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what it felt like. Cause it didn't feel like city. I had seen moose walking in town. But especially out on, out on the farm, like you'd see deer in the yard, or you'd uh, see a see a bear. But one of the things is in that darkness out out in the bush. Like at night was especially was especially something. With my windows open, you could hear like wolves or coyotes howling, and when they're in the distance, there's almost something cool to it uh, it's it's a familiar sound but when they're close suddenly the sound is less friendly and <laughs> more terrifying sound but, of dread <laughs> yes exactly now i knew i was safe in in the house they weren't going to get me in the house but if the sounds were too close then there was the thought of oh what about the livestock and am i going to have to am i going to have to go out there or what's 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 going to happen here or you'd hear the dogs just tear off into the bush, barking <laughs> madly. And it's like, well, I hope they come back. <laughs> but the dogs always did nighttime nighttime patrols. They'd be barking through most most of the night. Seemed like they were quite uh, keen on uh, protecting protecting the livestock and protecting us. So you know, good dogs. But yeah, it's like you know, if a pack of wolves pin you guys, you're done. <laughs> Yeah, they would stand a chance. <laughs> Were they big dogs or medium-sized dogs? We usually had big dogs. Uh, we had we had a uh, quite a few, a lot of border collies. We had an actual like collie collie. As the farming operation kind of started to wind down, as my parents were getting older, then we sort of transitioned to smaller dogs, uh, easier to take care of, mostly. Yeah. Although then, then you weren't as confident in their ability to scare off a stray <laughs> animal or something. But uh, there was one dog we had, Morgan. Her name was, uh, she was a border collie. Uh, she was just this big, fluffy dog. We called her BFG for big, fluffy dog. Um, <laughs> and um, she she loved my mother. Every time mom went out, she'd follow her wherever she went. And she was actually pretty good at herding chickens. So we'd actually let the chicken chickens out um, in the afternoon so they could, like, kind of free-range scavenge for bugs and food and greens and that sort of thing. Um, but whenever it got to a certain point, then we wanted the chickens back in the pen. And for the most part, they'd just wander in on their own, but occasionally you get a few uh, stubborn stragglers, and Morgan would just get them back, get them back in the hen house all lickety-split. She was good at that. But she was a bit of a, a coward. <laughs> <laughs> My dad has this story that he that he told of like, so if it was a choice between my mom and my dad, Morgan would pick mom. 
and dad would just be left to whatever he was doing. But if dad was the only one out there, then Morgan would go trucking on after him and follow him, whatever he was doing. Dad was going for a walk down to the field. I think he was going to check out something in the boneyard. And he heard something in the bush. I figured it might have been a, uh, might have been a bobcat or something. or some kind of cat. Uh, one of the bigger, meaner ones. Because we had had those in our area a few times as well. They'd come wandering around. Usually, usually you'd get warned by neighbors or something if they saw one. And this was one of those situations. But he heard something go crack in the bush. And he turned and looked. And then he looked for Morgan to see where she was. And she was already almost all the way back to the house. <laughs> she was just like, nope, leave you to die. See you. <laughs> Certainly man's best friend there. Her bark was much worse than her bark. <laughs> yes. So Arla, like Peace Country is notorious for hot summers, cold winters, but like, are there any like weather events that you remember in particular? Well, I got, I think I got two that really kind of stand out in mind. One's more of a general idea and the other one was an actual specific event. So one of the things we had on the farm was we had this huge um, glass window in the living room, which you could kind of see out to our garden and over the tops of the trees. And the trees were like pretty close. So it's not like you had this, commanding view of a valley or anything like you'd get down in southern alberta or out on the prairies but you still see a good portion of the sky and when you had a summer thunderstorm sitting in that living room on the couch with the lights off just looking out that window that was an experience and you'd open the two side windows so you could actually get the sound rolling in too from the thunder and like you had a commanding view of a large swath of where these strikes would be they just light up the sky, and then you'd feel the thunder come rolling in through the window, and it just, you were happy to be indoors. <laughs> yeah. But I've always, always loved watching thunderstorms like that. And, like, in the city, you just can't. Whenever we moved to Edmonton, like, the buildings just blocked the line of sight. Sure, you might see some flashes here or there, you might hear the thunder, but it's just not the same. And the only places where I've been able to recreate anything like that is in kind of more wide open spaces. Like I went to uh, Saskatchewan for a summer and I watched a storm roll in for like two hours from the horizon. And that was just glorious. But I always loved watching those storms out on the farm. Uh, It's just, you feel this real sense of like the power from it and also a sense of your own vulnerability. And, uh, yeah, so always love thunderstorms since then. But as for cold winters, one winter, particularly bad, there was a lot of snow and stuff, but we actually ended up being without power for about a week out on the farm. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, like, pretty much everyone north of town was just knocked off, knocked off the grid by this while they were trying to, while they were trying to repair everything because a bunch of, like, trees fell in lines and stuff, and it was a bit of a mess. But yeah, we were without power for about a week and basically couldn't get off the farm for a couple of days either just because of the condition of the roads. We we did all right because we had wood stove, we could heat we could heat water, uh had plenty of like preserves and canned food. So it's not like we starved or went cold or didn't have anything to drink. We had a generator that we No, I think that was that might have been before the generator. Maybe the reason not that entirely sure. they got the generator. Maybe the reason we got the generator. <laughs> <laughs> Cause and effect. Mm-hmm. 
But like in the wintertime, keeping food's not that hard if you're okay with frozen food because you <laughs> yeah. just throw it outside. It's good. So yep. we had like a bunch of open coolers on the deck, so so we didn't have to worry about everything in the deep freezes thawing out. But I tell you what, the worst part of it. So we had the wood stove in the living room, and it did a great job of keeping the living room warm and some of the surrounding area. But some of the rooms that were far away from it still got quite cold, including my bedroom. <laughs> And including the bathroom. And you're not going to go without washing yourself for a whole week. So you basically have to take a pot of water, go to the bathroom, and give yourself a sponge bath in air that is om- that is only slightly above freezing. <laughs> <laughs> uh. You take a hot sponge and you rub that, and then immediately it starts to evaporate and it's freezing. <laughs> you just try to do it as quickly as you can. So, so that was kind of awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can't imagine. Yeah, but power outages weren't uncommon out there. So we had like oil lamps and candles and all kinds of all kinds of stuff. But a week was, was a bit longer than we had we had faced before. Yeah, we actually even had an outhouse on the farm for part of my time growing up. We did have indoor plumbing, but like when there was a power outage or something wrong with the pumps or something, at least you still had somewhere. Even if you had to go outside for it, which in the winter times is unpleasant. <laughs> yes. And in the summer times, sometimes it could be wasps nesting in there, which was also unpleasant. Yeah. Or you're trying to do business and the mosquitoes yeah. are just having at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of a lot of bugs out there. That was something that was strange about living in the city is just how few bugs there were. I mean, I wasn't complaining. But but I uh, went for a walk in the community forest with my wife. Uh, we took a trip to Fort St. John for some not-so-great reasons, but we uh, ended up taking a walk in the community forest. And it's just, it was kind of shocking how many bugs there were. It was like, I don't remember this part, but it's always been. I've just been spoiled by the city. <laughs> yeah, it never ceases to astonish me how many mosquitoes there are in places where there are so few people. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what they live off of. <laughs> Bears and moose, mostly. Yeah, I suspect. Other large mammals. And those moose, they are, they are not small creatures whenever you see them up front. Yeah, I, I remember the... I don't even the closest I've ever really been to a moose. I was driving from Grand Prairie to Fort St. John again, and I was on the south side of the Taylor Hill, and I was coming almost to like the crest of the hill, ready to go down into the valley, into the Peace Valley. And I wasn't really paying attention to the road because I was driving. It was getting late and I was probably tired. And then suddenly there was a moose right next to the car as I drove by it. And it was like right next to the car. I almost hit it. And as I passed by it and I saw how big it was, it was like, oh, its head is as big as my torso. Like my whole body is just its head. It's like this thing is huge. If I had hit that thing, it would have been. All the other stories that you hear in the peace country, people hitting moose. The whole car is just done. Yeah, it's just, it's terrifying. They're so big. Yeah, I was, um, I was driving from, yeah, actually from Grand Grand Prairie to uh, Fort St. John, and just before you come to the uh, to the Alberta and BC border, there's uh, there's this way scale, and there's this kind of this wider section of road so people can go past the trucks as they're turning off. And I'm driving, I'm driving along. Long there, roads clear, roads dry, everything's fine. 
And I reach down to grab something from the center console, and when I look up, there's two moose crossing the road. And I was like, where did these come from? Of course, I didn't really have any time to think, so I just grabbed the wheel, and I swerve around and come back. And I swear one of my tires came off the road from that. That's how close they were. And it's like they just came out of nowhere. So I don't know. Maybe we need to do some uh, some investigation to see if moose can teleport. (laughs) Well, my one experience... One of my experiences of almost hitting a moose, I was just, I was in high school, driving the town. Oh, no, it's post high school. It's going to work. And the snow was heavy. It's morning. It's dark. And this is snowing so bad that visibility was poor, but not so poor that like you can't drive. And here I am driving. And the moose just like in a full trot just comes up on the left side of the road. But I didn't see it until like, because the snow and the headlights, until it was like, Great Scott, like, I'm going to hit this thing. We're on collision course. But, like, I managed to go far enough right that I didn't go in the ditch. But I almost hit its chin with my mirror. Like, it felt that close. <laughs> but it's probably exaggerating it. But it was like, yeah, its head was huge. Like, it's high as the pickup, top of the pickup truck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a pair of them uh, cross in front of me on a, on a country road. Thankfully, I saw them coming so I could stop. But, like, they're going by like their bodies is taller than the minivan I was driving. It's like, man, these things are big. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are not small animals. Yeah, I think the the final story I'll, I'll share is I was with my dad. We were in oil and gas country doing work in oil and gas, and it had been a particularly heavy snow for for the winter. I think over the course of the winter, it had easily gone over six or seven feet, and you know they're constantly plowing the roads to let oil and gas traffic get to the sites. But that meant instead of the ditches going down, they had filled and now had like started to build these walls. And there were like three or four foot walls of snow on the sides of the road. And this poor moose was on the road. And we were basically following it for a couple of miles until it finally got brave enough to climb over the, the ridge and get out of the way. But it was just like wandering back and forth slowly as we crept behind it and of course it looked terrified because mm-hmm. this thing bigger than than it was there and it didn't know where to go and it couldn't go anywhere yeah sometimes you get some dumps of snow like that it's in it's insane there was one year in fort st john where over the course of two days we got more snow than we usually got over the entire month so it just all decided to just dump all at once like the snow plows are going nonstop through the actual blizzard. And then whenever the blizzard was done in Fort St. John, like there's a lot of snow. And sometimes they didn't always get to the actual removing it from the streets part. So they just pile it up in the middle of the street. So where normally you have a center line, now you have this large mountain of snow. And it was so tall, you couldn't actually see the lane on the other side. You couldn't see the other cars. You couldn't see the people. Nothing. It's just this wall of snow. And they had brakes in it for areas where you might want to turn and get off the road. But that was it. Just a dump of snow. And like on the main main drag in Fort St. John, it's it's a four-lane road. And at that time, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was just two lanes. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the other interesting things of living up there is, of course, the Chinooks. Because uh, when it gets cold, it's not necessarily just going to stay cold. You get these uh, blasts of warm air coming in from the mountains, and it'll just like almost dissipate winter for a bit. The most extreme one I had ever had was it was like a week of like minus thirty, and then we had a chinook, 
and the next day it was plus 12. And everything was melting and wet and muddy and gross. But at the same time, it was also great because it was minus 30 and now it's not. So you're wearing T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can help. Those sort of things can help make the winter pass by with, I'd say, it's nice to have the little breaks. I know some people say that it probably doesn't do anything good to our immune system. And that might be true. But all I know is it's nice to suddenly have below zero temperatures after facing that inhuman temperature the week before. Yeah. Because when you're hitting minus 30 and minus 40, nothing wants to work right anymore. Yeah. I actually once ended up having to walk across town in a blizzard of minus 40 with a friend of mine. So I got to school on the bus. The weather was okay. And then this like sudden snap blizzard kind of rolls into town and it's just blowing snow. It's terrible. The roads are awful. And, um, and my dad and, uh, the buses, the buses got canceled. Like they're not going out on the roads anymore and I'm stuck in town and my parents are stuck on the farm. And I'm like, well, what do I do now? So my one friend, Jonathan Ross, good friend of mine, I've known him since high school, but Basically, he says I can go and stay at his house. So we end up walking across town to his house in this blizzard. And I, I assure you, I was not dressed for that. <laughs> and we get to his house. And I swear, it felt like as my legs were starting to get feeling again, it almost felt like they were, it's the weirdest sensation I've ever felt. I, I don't want to say it was frostbite. Could have been. But it's almost felt like my legs were melting. <laughs> as they were heating oh, man. it was bizarre <laughs> and we were just so cold but so happy to be indoors again <laughs> but yeah i was i was grateful to him for giving me a place to crash because my next best plan was to hide in the library and sleep behind some books yeah yeah <laughs> that's crazy i wonder if it was the same dorm when i think i was in high school but I don't think our older brother Travis was. I think he was in town working and a blizzard came in and he stayed in town for the night because it was just so bad that it was way too dangerous. Yeah. I drove home with dad and that dad picked me up from basketball or something. If we drove home, which wasn't very far, but we saw like a dozen cars in the ditch. Yeah. On a short drive. Yeah. You get some of those, you get some of those storms and you're driving on the road and it's like, Oh, there's a new car. There's a new car. There's a new car. All in the ditch. Just. It was like, go slow, hope for the best, and maybe don't leave the house for a few days. I think in a related way, one of the things that I kind of found disappointing about, well, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but I kind of found disappointing about going to school in the peace country is that you almost never got snow days. It was almost always cold days, uh-huh. right? Like they were so, they're so well prepared for dumps of snow that like almost no amount of snow is going to cancel school. It really has to be atrocious snow to cancel school. And then it's usually canceled for two days because the next day is the cleanup day because it's still so bad. Mm. And so you you hear stories about people getting snow days and having a great time. I mean, there's a whole movie called snow day, but like it's different (laughs) when, when they cancel school because it's too cold. Then you don't want to go and play outside because it's too cold. (laughs) Well, it's different. I know at the elementary school up in Charlie Lake, and this might be one of those old urban, urban legend things. But I do remember that they did actually used to do do snow days at Charlie Lake, um, where the school could actually just be closed. No one was coming in. But 
and this is the urban legend part, apparently uh, some kid got dropped off at school on a snow day and school was closed, so he couldn't go inside. So I'm guessing he just walked to the Charlie Lake store or something nearby. But apparently it was like all this big scandal. So then the school district mandated that the school had to be open regardless, even if it was just one staff member to get the doors open in case some kid gets dropped off by, by I guess, parents who didn't realize that a blizzard is bad news. <laughs> and um, so after that, there was no snow days at, at Charlie Lake anymore, and it might have been for the whole school district, so hence no more snow days. But living way out in the country, we could still get a day when the buses were canceled. Yeah. And that was our excuse. Yeah, that's what it was like when I was growing up. Like, the school was always open. But if the bus is canceled, you had no obligation to go to school. <laughs> mm-hmm. but then often, then sometimes I'd end up just getting driven to school anyway by my dad who was on his way to work or something. So it's like, bus is canceled, but I'm still going. And there were a few days, like, there were a few days in Charlie Lake. Like, normally for, like, recess or lunch, they just, like, kick us out, out into the elements. But there were some time when it was so miserable they weren't going to kick the kids out into like blizzard like conditions uh so then we'd all end up hanging out inside the school for our recess and lunches and the office actually had like boxes of toys for the classrooms you could go down and sign up for a for like a set of jacks to play uh <laughs> so that, that was always kind of cool. not like he'd 50 anymore hardly <laughs> i didn't pick the toys same toys from since 1950. <laughs> when the school first opened. Keep signing them mm-hmm. out. So Arlen, having grown up in the peace country and now living in a bigger city, can you make some comparisons for us with a slower pace, laid back nature of the peace country that you grew up experiencing? And do you think that was inherent to the peace country? Or do you think that was sort of inherent to childhood and a sense of free time? Well, I mean, most people I know wouldn't describe the uh, peace country as laid back. A lot of resource uh, resource work, yeah. people working hard, a lot of that go, go, go mentality. Or as the old saying is, get her done. <laughs> so, yeah. A lot of that up there, very hardworking place. But there was to a degree, I would say, less busyness. Like, yes, there was hard work. People busy a lot with work. But when you weren't working there wasn't necessarily as much going on if that makes sense like yeah edmonton living in the big city don't get me wrong there's a lot of amenities there's a lot of things to do there's a lot of places to go all that they're bonuses that's perks i'm not gonna lie and say that it's not but by that same token, you can also end up, in a way, feeling more isolated from the people around you. My brother Brendan describes the big city as a place where you can go, be surrounded by people, but still be completely alone. And up in the peace country, I know, I know many, uh, many people and some friends who had very different experiences than me. And part of that goes to, I guess, you know, I had the church community to lean on. I had my little circle of people who I knew way out in the country that we could that we could talk to. Like out in the country, if something bad's happening, you help your neighbor. 
because no one else can. Like, there was one time where one of our neighbor's houses actually caught fire, and we were well beyond the fire protection service radius. So neighbors just started calling neighbors, and we had one guy show up with a water truck, and the rest of us were trying to pull out belongings, forming bucket brigades, and that sort of thing. And we did what we could to save the house and save the people, and we all just banded together. There was no question of, well, whose responsibility is this? The responsibility was to whoever could do something. And in a lot of ways, I think that sums up kind of that more isolated, that more isolated life. And that's something which I found to be lacking in a big city. It's not really a question of, well, what can I do? It's more of a question of, well, whose responsibility is it? Yeah. There's always an office at City Hall whose job it's supposed to be, and so no one decides they want to do it. That said, like, not everyone was like that up in Fort St. John. Very transient town. Some people were just there for the work, just there to make a lot of money and have fun and then leave when the work's gone. But for me, I had community. I had people who cared. And we tried to do things for each other because who else is going to do it? It's like way up there, Fort St. John, it's not on the way to anything except the Yukon. And there's even less there than there is where we were. (laughs) Like, no one has a reason to go to Fort St. John just to go to Fort St. John. Like, that was a thing. Yeah. Edmonton, that's a destination. There's things to, there's reasons to go there. There's reasons to be there. But you don't go to Fort St. John because you thought, hey, that sounds nice. You go to Fort St. John because there was work, because that's where you were originally from stuff like that it wasn't a destination so you had to make the best of what you had thank you it's insightful yeah because i i remember one time there was an apartment building in town that actually caught fire and the tenants had to be evacuated and basically there was a sudden influx of people who had nowhere to go and i remember there was just this huge outpouring of like donations and stuff Offers for places that people could go, just dropping off stuff. Like there was this large space which they had set aside and it just ended up getting filled. People could do something, so they did. Didn't always work out that way. Like we had homeless people in Fort St. John. There was a real problem with that. And in a lot of ways, like I wish there was more that we had done for them, but that's also a very complicated issue sometimes, more complicated than just giving people a home. Because there was substance abuse problems up there too. That was almost inherent with the patch, with the oil patch, that is. And that was one of those things, right? Either you had a community and you were looking out for each other, or you were on your own and it could be a hard place. Yeah. Yeah. Very different experiences depending on a lot of factors. For me, I would call my experience up there generally positive, but I've heard from friends who didn't have as positive a time as me. And I think that's one of the things that I took away from the peace region, honestly, is a lot of your life is defined by the community you're part of. So try and pick good ones. Yeah. Yeah, I found when I lived in Fort St. John with my uncle Jim and and Pam that, you know, that's where most of the friendship that I have with you, Arlen, developed. Because at that point we were more independent than we were adults, I guess. If you quotes. <laughs> you could vote. <laughs> we were more adult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I found the difference between living in Fort St. John and living in Grand Prairie 
was the community of of people. Like it was mostly my interactions with people at church, and I found that the group of people in Fort Saint John seemed to be more engaged in activities that were like they were building something and building something together than in Grand Prairie, where it felt like everybody was just sort of there. They would show up and do stuff, but they weren't sort of creating this this larger scale thing together. And I always found that like the the young single adult group in Fort St. John was sort of more homely or like together that it was sort of a more tightly knit, I guess. I think like a specific example is it always just astonished me that in the spare time of some of the people in Fort St. John, they would write books or make movies or, you know, in, endeavor creative projects of some scale or, you know, some amateur level. And then I'd go back to Grand Prairie and it was sort of like, hey, do you want to, you know, play video games? <laughs> it was fine and I enjoyed it, but it's just sort of different when the energy is focused in, in creating something than it is in just partaking of it. So I have a really fun place for in my heart for Fort St. John. What's that? said, I appreciate that perspective of uh, it's nice to get an outsider look at your, uh, at your circle sometimes. Yeah. Did you, you, did you and your friends play D and D or like Dungeons and Dragons? Not really my church friends, but I had high school friends that I did. I did play that with. Yeah. Was, yeah. I know some of the other people in, in the, in the young adult group had had experience with it in other circles as well. So yeah, it was a thing. Don't think we ever did it did yeah. it as a group there, but that would have been a good idea. Hindsight. Yeah. Yeah, Nathan, our cousin, Jim and Pam's son. Nathan introduced me to D and D as a general level. And as a kid I just when I was younger I just did not understand the concept. It's like so you create the character yourself and you can write down their strengths and abilities with a pencil. Why wouldn't you just like max it all out and just make it the best? It it took me until I actually began playing that it's like oh actually weaknesses are are really the uh, the ideal parts of character that make the character interesting. It's not their it's not their strengths; it's their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Well, Arlen, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, this is absolutely this has been uh, this has been delightful. Yes, it's been great to hear your stories about Fort Saint John and the Peace Country. Is there anything that you want to share or promote, Arlen? Ooh, promote. You're leaving that window open. Yes, we have about four listeners on average, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to that staggering number of listeners, you did mention that in our young adult group, there was a lot of creative endeavors going on, and I am one of the partakers of those creative endeavors. I like to write, write science fiction, some fantasy. You can just do a Google search for my name, and you'll probably find some of my stuff on Amazon or maybe even my website, so be great to have four more readers. <laughs> yeah, we can definitely put a link to your site in the show notes. Can do. It's been a pleasure, Arlen. We're so grateful that you could join us and share your stories with us. We know that taking an hour to swap stories is such a small fraction of anyone's life. So thank you for sharing some of those. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's been a it's been a pleasure, and I'm probably gonna have to go listen to the rest of your podcast because uh, this is a very interesting uh, interesting project you got going on here. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you have questions or comments or feedback, 
you can email us at lifenorth at the 54th at gmail.com. We're happy to hear from you, to hear your stories, or just to um, hear from you and let us know that you're listening. Till next time, thank you for joining us. See you around, Arla. Cheerio.